Or you could stand, I guess, that'd be fine. I'm gonna stand. Good morning, glad you're here again, and uh, we're gonna dive into our series. Okay, let me come over here, you guys are ready. We're, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna dive into, thank you. Uh, I've always been tempted to do that, like if no one sits in the first five rows, just like walk down to the aisle and come back some. We're, uh, we're in a series in Luke, we're in chapter five, you can turn there towards the end of chapter five, and this passage got me thinking about what we, ha- what we do to uh, kind of look spiritual in the church and got me kind of thinking back through my life. And I know some of you can remember maybe a couple more decades than me and some of you, you know, maybe a few less decades than me. But for me, it started kind of in the 70s. I was a teenager, so I understand that slants it. But in the 70s, if you wanted to look spiritual, you'd find yourself at a campfire and you'd sing folk songs. And then you'd really feel, you'd really feel spiritual. In the 80s, you know, what we do in churches, we'd... You'd carry, well, you've got to carry a really big Bible, you know, the really big Bible. You carry a big Bible, and it helps if you talk about the rapture a lot. You look really, sound, sound pretty spiritual in the 80s, talking about the rapture. Now, in the 90s, of course, we had to get our What Would Jesus Do gear on, you know, our bracelets and our T-shirts and our caps, and, and we'd put those on and head off to our accountability group meetings. Remember those? We all had accountability groups. I don't know what happened to those, but anyway... Uh, in the in the 2000s, um, okay, the spiritual people, what they would do, the really spiritual people, they would kiss dating goodbye, right? So that they would have time to learn to pray like Jabez, right? Those were the spiritual people. Don't know if any of you remember that. And, uh, and of course, now, modern times, it's so good to be a modern person, isn't it? Because we don't fall for those fads anymore. We're just into authenticity. That's what, that's what, that's what we're after. And, oh, and, and you don't carry a big Bible. You read your ESV on your phone. That's the spiritual people. Anyway, when we, we come to our passage today, we're encountering the Pharisees once again. And, and of course, we know where it's headed because we kind of understand the story. Eventually, they want him dead. They want Jesus dead. But I don't know that it starts that way. I'm pretty sure it doesn't. Here's Jesus, and we're early in the book. We're early in the story. He's wandering around, and he's doing some pretty amazing things. I mean, there's people walking around who used to not walk around, you know, and, and just amazing things, and they're curious. And so they give him a lot of attention, and rightly so. And they're really thinking about it. But I think not, not like, oh, we got to kill this guy, but they're looking at him, and they're trying to figure it out. And I think to them, he looks wrong. He just, like, that was amazing, but you're not looking, you don't pass the eye test to us, Jesus. You don't look like a spiritual person. The context of our story is really where we were last week. Levi, you remember, he was a tax collector, and Jesus wanders by and says, hey, why don't you be my disciple? And, and Levi is like, seriously, me? I could do that? And so he, uh, he cooks dinner, and he gathers his friends, and Jesus comes, and the disciples come, and apparently, I don't know, peeking through the fence or something, the Pharisees are there, and some other people are watching, and and we heard that story last week, and they ask him a question, and, and, and the question is posed, why do you compromise your spirituality by eating with sinners? You know, why are you doing this wrong thing? And Jesus' answer, we heard last week, was it's not compromise, it's called being a missionary, 
right? I came to, to, for the benefit to be with sinners. I came to help people, and if you're going to help people, you only get one option, and that's sinners. So, of course, I'm eating with sinners. I would be doing the same thing if I came to your house, Pharisees. I'd be eating with sinners. So that's what I do. It's not compromising my spirituality. It's what I do. It's, a, it's being a missionary. And they have this second question. The first one was kind of like, why do you do the wrong thing? And now it's like, how come we don't see you doing the right thing? You know, the spiritual thing. And we have a, a question about fasting in, in uh, chapter 5, verse 33. Well, it's not really a question. It's a statement. But the question is sort of implied. They said to him, now John's disciples... Interesting ploy here. John's disciples often fast and pray. You like him. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Right? What's up with that? Now, who's asking? The Pharisees are, are present. But when we, when we compare this passage in Luke to Matthew and, and Mark talking about this, we can see apparently John's disciples were present as well. They've come to inquire of him, and, and maybe the Pharisees have put them up to that and trying to cause doubt in their minds. Maybe that stuff, and, and, or, or, you know, the dinner guests, they didn't ask the question or they didn't make the statement, but, but at this point, they have to be curious. What's the answer? Now, some people might intend this as an accusation. Others might just have an honest question. Yeah, why don't you do this, Jesus? And, and, and others would just be curious. A question about fasting. Now, before we go on and get to what Jesus says, there's some things about fasting we need to understand, some background. First of all, in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Covenant, if you were following the law, there was really only one fast that was commanded by Moses, and that was on the Day of Atonement. A, a, a huge celebration where the priest would, you know, the, the great sacrifice of the year, done by the high priest, the Day of Atonement, and all the people were to fast on that day. Leviticus chapter 16 is where you can read about that. But the people of Israel also occasionally practiced fasting, and in particular, uh, in, in times of national crisis, the people would be gathered together, and they would all fast. We see that in Esther chapter 4, and in Joel chapter 1, other places like that. You can read about those. Now, in the very last days of the Old Testament, sort of the closing pages, which would be John the Baptist, we see that his disciples fasted as well. And it kind of makes sense. John lived a very ascetic lifestyle, and he would have easily promoted fasting with his disciples. Now, how about fasting in the New Testament? First of all, here's the most obvious thing about this accusation. Jesus fasted, <laughs> right? How, what's one of the first things we see him doing when, when he's grown up, right? Fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, right? That's really the start of his ministry or, or prior to the launch of his ministry. Jesus fasted. He taught about fasting. He recommended fasting in a spiritual warfare context. We see that the apostles fasted and the early church fasted. So we got the Old Testament, we got the New Testament, and we got the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, their practice was, to, and they dreamed this up on their own. They fasted every Monday and Thursday. 
can you imagine? Uh, day, day one was Friday, and I'm just thinking like, oh, two days a week. Like, oh, it's just hard to even think about. But they fasted every Monday and Thursday. And they used fasting to express a very mournful kind of self-sacrificing attitude. They, they thought they had to sort of beat themselves up to get God's attention and trying to earn something. Like, see how, oh, see what we do, see how hard I make my life, God. And now you kind of owe me, right? That would be, be the idea. It was very solemn. It was very serious. It was, it was gloomy, actually. Now, he, now, connect the dots here if you're a Pharisee. This is how you practice fasting, and you believe that truly spiritual people are going to fast like you do, Monday and Thursday, at least. I mean, that's what we do. That's what the spiritual people do. They fast on Monday and Thursday. That's what the Pharisees have said to do. And so that's how we fast. That's when we fast. That's how we fast. So truly spiritual people are going to look uncomfortable. They're going to look sad, mopey, suffering, uncomfortable. So they pose this to Jesus, and he says, why don't I demonstrate your, your spirituality? Well, the real problem is you guys just don't recognize gospel spirituality. Now, we're not going to have a, anywhere near a comprehensive list, but we'll look at two things from this passage in, in getting a picture. Well, what does spirituality really look like? I mean, is it really about which Bible you carry or, or something like that? What's it about? What's it really look like? Here's a couple things for us today. The first is that spirituality actually looks joyful. Gospel spirituality. In other words, when, when your belief is in the gospel and that guides how you practice following Christ and, and honoring and worshiping God, when that's what guides you, it creates joy in you because you realize God is present in your life. This is what Jesus ends up telling them. He answers, uh, can, you, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. So Jesus basically appeals to a really common cultural thing. For instance, if I was going to give an illustration and it was, had to do with how, how we do weddings, I mean, you would instantly recognize. I could talk about how the, the best man and the maid of honor hold the rings, you know, and you would know exactly what I'm talking about. And, and so that's what Jesus has done because... Their practice was that the, I don't know, you'd say it was kind of like the wedding party, but they were called the friends of the bridegroom. They would fast before the wedding. I don't, I'm sorry, I didn't study it well enough to know how long, but they would fast before the wedding, and as soon as the bridegroom arrived, when they could hear his voice, food's on, party's on. We're celebrating. The wedding starts. The bridegroom's arrived. We're getting going, and we're going to feast. Because this is all joy, this is all celebration. So he's like, listen, do, do the friends of the bridegroom keep fasting after he arrived? And everyone would be like, that's dumb. Nobody does that. And, th- and that's the point he's trying to make, that in this situation also, it doesn't make sense. Now, in the Old Testament, we don't see any references to the Messiah being like a bridegroom. But we do have John the Baptist saying that, and he calls himself a friend of the bridegroom. Jesus picks it up here, calls himself like a bridegroom, and by the time we've moved through the New Testament, we get to the ending, we get to Revelation where we see this picture where the bridegroom 
Jesus, the Messiah, actually has a bride, and it's the church, right? And our future, what our future is like, is like a, a wedding feast. The, the joy of the presence of the bride with the bridegroom at a wedding. It's a, it's a great day. It's one of the greatest days you can have in your life. And that's what our future is like. And then we understand from, from Paul in Ephesians 5 that it's actually the other way around. <laughs> that's the reality. And a wedding is a little slice, a little hint of that kind of joy. A wedding here is a shadow of the reality in the future. That's the real, that's the real thing. He's like a bridegroom. So Jesus is saying, you know what, my disciples are absolutely right to celebrate. We're going to feast, right? I'm in their presence. And anyone who understands who I am and sits down to eat a meal with me is going to be joyful. They're present with the bridegroom. There's just nothing better. There's just nothing better than being in his presence. So he has a couple points for the Pharisees. When they say, you know, you look funny to us. You're doing these amazing things, but you don't look right. Jesus says, well, first of all, you need to understand that it's joy, not sorrow. That's the baseline of spirituality. Yes, life comes with grieving and, and, and rejoicing, and we're, yeah, we're all over the map, you know, from one day or one year to another, and we, we face tough times. But, but joy is the baseline. It's like the, the point of equilibrium that we come back to, right, when we process through things, and we come back to that when we remember that God is present in my life, and that creates joy. And that's sort of just the, the normal place to be when our focus is in the right place. Oh, when it's not, of course, we might struggle to be there. My disciples are right to celebrate. You guys don't realize joy is what spirituality looks like. Now, Romans 14 says it this way. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking right? It's not whether we're feasting right now, Pharisees. It's not whether you're fasting on Monday and Thursday, right? That's not spirituality. It's things like righteousness and peace. And see that joy? That joy, he says, is coming from the Holy Spirit. And at the risk of like simplifying one of the members of the Trinity into one thing, which is nonsense, but you know, what what at its core like, is the most important thing about the Holy Spirit to us? It's God's presence in our lives. That's what he represents first and foremost to us. Jesus says, I'm going away, but I'll send the counselor to you to be with you forever. And that's how I am present with you is through the Holy Spirit. And my presence always creates joy when you realize it's there. God's with me. God is with me. So there's the first kind of thing for the, for the Pharisees. You've got to realize it's joy, not sorrow. And then he actually, I think, is, is going to tell them in the long run, not necessarily completely in this passage, but you guys are fasting wrong. <laughs> you know what? Let me, te- let me teach you about fasting. 
And Jesus does that for us in Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you fast, here's an accusation back, when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. So apparently the Pharisees actually would get, you know, they'd get some makeup. They'd get some white stuff and they put it, so like, you know, like, oh, you're really withdrawn to the, you know, like, oh, you're not looking good today. And they'd actually put stuff on their faces to, to give the appearance of greater suffering, right? It's sort of unmakeup, I guess, right? I need to look sickly today. Can you imagine that? Now, follow the logic here. Jesus is saying, listen, if someone goes about and they think fasting is about being mournful and, and trying to suffer for their own sin <laughs> or suffer to get leverage on God, but they say it's really earnestly seeking God for something. Okay, let's just suppose that's true. And then God answers them. Let's just suppose God answers their seeking, right? And then they go on continually looking mournful and sad and suffering and uncomfortable. Jesus' point is, well, there you go. There's the proof. That's what you were really after. You only said you were seeking God. You weren't, because at the end of it, you still look sorrowful. And so that's what you wanted. You got what you want. What you wanted was to maybe convince a few other people that you were spiritual. Ooh, look at those guys. Man, every Monday and Thursday, those poor guys, they look so sad. They're suffering so hard. It's like, that's your reward. You convinced a few people of something that isn't true. Well done. That, that's all you got. You guys are fasting wrong. They used it to build an outward appearance of spirituality. See, if, if anyone, think about this. If someone had really been for years fasting every Monday and Thursday to just seek God for, for the nation of Israel, for their own um, forgiveness, for their own faith, the strengthening of their faith, and for the, for the coming of the Messiah. And then God answers that seeking, and Jesus walks in the room and says, here I am. Who do you think would be the happiest, right? The guys who've been like sweating it out and pouring their lives into this, they'd be like, they'd be cooking dinner. They'd be celebrating. They'd be excited about Levi, and look at what he's doing once he's come. That's what we were seeking for Israel. He could even save tax collectors. Oh, I'm so glad I... I'm so glad. I never thought of being a pulpit pounder, but I guess that was it. It's really my nature. See, wouldn't, it, wouldn't they be like the happiest people on the planet? if that fasting had really been about seeking God. Jesus, that's, that's his challenge to them. Now, what about fasting for us? Let's bring it to us. Jesus does have some, some instruction for us. Notice he mentions in Luke 5, the time will come when the, when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and in those days they will fast. Now, I don't think Jesus is giving a timeline. He is giving a very early sort of cryptic reference to the cross, right? I don't think he's really expecting them in this moment to, 
be able to understand it. He's going to tell them plainly in future chapters, and they still won't get it. So, you know, give him a break here. But he's giving this early kind of introductory, you know, I will be taken away from you. I will die, and then you'll fast. I don't think he means like, hey, they're not going to fast until the cross, and then for three days they'll fast, but then I'll rise again, and then they won't fast because I'll be with them for 40 days, and then I'll go back to heaven, and then they'll fast again. I don't think it's timeline like that. I just think he means, you know, while, while joy is the baseline for us of true spirituality, the gospel does have a serious side. Salvation did come at a cost, <laughs> and we're the ones who created that cost. There is a serious side, and so fasting is an appropriate discipline for gospel spirituality. Fasting can help us express things like seriousness and Sincerity and intensity it help, can help us find or express passion or, or humility or dependence on God. You see, it's, a, it's like any other discipline. It's a way of, of using our body to help us go where our spirit wants to go. And, and we, we realize that in a more full way. So, for example, I want to be dependent on God. My spirit wants to do that. So I use my body to help me experience that in a more full way. And if that's what I'm doing with fasting, it's a helpful thing. Because I'm really seeking God. And that's really kind of the, the two observations we need to bring out of this. Jesus, in Matthew 6, teaches us, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. Don't get the... Don't get the white out. Don't get the, uh, the ash stuff that makes people want to call 911. You know, take a shower, comb your hair if you got it, and, you know, put on some deodorant and, and go out there and be joyful and then intensely seek God in your fasting. But notice he says, somewhere here, <laughs> uh, do it so it won't be obvious to others, but only to your Father your heavenly Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. See, it's fasting, real fasting is about pursuing God, not impressing people. Other people have nothing to do with it. Just leave, leave them out of it, all right? That doesn't mean you can't fast together in groups or something, but not to impress them. And then we also see that, that God is the reward. Notice the language here. He says, it's about your father. This is, fasting is a, is a relational activity because God is the reward. It reminds me of, of uh, Psalm 16. Uh, the, the writer here said, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. My, you make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. He's just picturing into the future, you know, he, he's like, it's like inheriting some land. But instead of land, what I get, even though it's, it's really generous property lines, you know, I got a lot of territory, big acreage, but, it, but it's not just land, it's actually God. That's my inheritance. And it's the best thing I could get. And I think that when we fast and when we're really seriously pursuing God, even for some great need, he, he will answer that. But however he answers that, God himself is still going to be the best part of that answer. That's what the Pharisees needed to realize. It's what Jesus teaches. So, first thing, spirituality looks joyful. It looks joyful. It also looks new. So Jesus tells them, you know, we don't look spiritual to you because 
the spirituality I'm, I'm teaching is marked by newness in, in two different ways. Now, I'm going to cover these parables and, and kind of focus on these two different meanings. They're, they're probably interchangeable, but just kind of play along with me here. The first one has to do with newness in the sense of inward change, that the gospel is built on repentance, which creates a dynamic inward change. Now, John and his disciples attempted to lead people to that place, but the Pharisees never did. They promoted an an outward conformity, right? Not an inward change. They just wanted to see people suffering on Monday and Thursday, (laughs) right? But But the gospel brings inward change. So he tells them this parable. No, no one tears a piece out of a, a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. So the new garment here is representing Jesus' ways, and the old garment, the Pharisees' ways. And I think he's just basically saying, hey, you're not going to, we're not doing it. We're not going to do the Monday Thursday fast in some ritual thing and walking around sorrowful. I, yeah, I know it disappoints you and it makes you think we're not spiritual, but we're not doing, we're not doing that because spirituality, we can't follow that route. It's about inward change. And Jesus makes that possible through inner transformation. He says it doesn't make any sense to try and mix and match here, to take, you know, what I'm saying and try and press it into what you're doing on Monday and Thursday. They're just, it's an old garment and it's a new garment. You know, you've got to choose. You're going to have to choose one or the other. We're not going to ruin one to try and fix the other and then end up ruining it as well. And then there's newness, not only in the inward change sense, but in a new way of relating to God. Now, here, Jesus is going to surprise everyone, the entire crowd. It's the same God, the same redeeming, loving, gracious God, but it's a whole new system of relating to God. So he tells this parable as well. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Now, I don't know anything about wine. I don't even like wine, but don't worry about it. I don't like coffee and Dr. Pepper and Mountain Dew either, so I don't know what that means. But I just don't know anything about wine. But apparently, you know, you may have heard it before. They, they would take an animal skin, maybe even a whole... I was going to say donkey, not a donkey. Uh, what was the, oh, goats, that's it. They take a whole goat, you know, and try and get all the meat out, you know, tie up the legs, I guess, you know, and then they got this big skin and they could put wine in there. Now, when you had a, a new skin, you could put new wine in there and then the, the fermentation process, you know, the thing that spoils it. Um, <clears throat> anyway, never mind. I'm going to get in trouble with some friends. Um, it, it would... <clears throat> it would be able to handle that because it was pliable and it would take that. And you could use that several times over, but eventually it would, it would wear and become a little more brittle and you couldn't put new wine in anymore. It would burst it and so you would lose the wine and you would lose the skin and it was just, just a complete waste. And he's saying that, that makes no sense at all, does it? You wouldn't mix those two things. And what he's going to get at is that the old wine were the forms of the old covenant. Now this isn't just the, the abuses of the Pharisees. 
he, he's going to get to something absolutely dramatic here, eventually in his ministry. He, he, he's giving us a hint of this already. It's the forms, the, the proper ways of pursuing God in the Old Covenant, in the law. You know, those are going to be fulfilled and, and passed away, and there will be a new, a new covenant, a new way of agreeing to relate to God. So, for example, let's take something legitimate. The Day of Atonement was legitimate. God wanted the people to do that, and, and they celebrated that, and that was the right thing to do, and he, he told them to fast on that day. So that was a proper kind. That was spiritual. Old Testament spirituality was to fast on the Day of Atonement. It was a good thing to do. You should have done that if you were there, right? But what he's saying is, that's good, but it's old wine, and I've got some new wine that's going to be like, it's, you know, it's kind of in the fermentation process. It's growing here. It's stretching to you, and it's going to be completely new. And so while you had the, the Day of Atonement, there's a day coming, and he doesn't say it here, but that will be the Day of Atonement, the cross, Right? See, at the Day of Atonement, the, the, the priest, you know, made a sacrifice of an animal which can't actually pay for anyone's sins, but the people were asked to do that in faith that somehow that would be accomplished, right? And they could maintain fellowship with God. But the real payment for those sins wouldn't come from the Day of Atonement. It would come from the cross, or what I might say, the <laughs> day of atonement, when atonement was really completed, the, the, the sacrifice that was really accepted and settled it all. He's like, you're not going to need the, the old stuff anymore because something new is coming. We're going to look more about that in just a minute. And then to conclude, he kind of fires back. This is a little confusing statement uh, at, at first read. He says, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. It's a little confusing, like, whoa, I don't understand. Now the old is better? What's he mean? Well, this is actually a common saying of the day. The old is better. You know, like, uh, I'm trying to decide things. Should I wear my old shirt or my new shirt? I don't know. The old is better. So that's how you decide. Or, you know, should I keep my old donkey or get a new donkey? Like, yeah, the old one's better. And it was just like a popular, that's what you would hear people say was, the old is, is better. And uh, it's, it's funny. It, it was, it's not a saying today, but it's still, I think, in our hearts. It's still kind of in our, our makeup, if you will. I was in a doctor's office this week, and I was waiting in the, in the lobby in the waiting room right by the desk, and there were three people there having a discussion about a problem they were having, uh, administrative problem, in handling something on the computer with patient management stuff. And they're like, yeah, it's not working. And we frustrate patients because we tell them one thing and then it ends up something else. And I don't know what the problem was, but they were having a problem and they wanted to fix it for, for patients. And someone suggested something, you know, like, yeah, that would work. There's this long pause. And then someone goes, one of the three of them goes, but I hate change. The other person goes, oh, me too. And you're like, just, I don't even know what, what they need to do and how it turns out. I don't need to know how it turns out, but it just was like this light comes on. It's like, that's still in us. Like, oh, I hate change. See, I, and right at this moment, I'm thinking, oh, here they are. They're right on the, the, the precipice of acknowledging this huge problem, but going, 
Yeah, but fixing it, uh, I think I'll just live with the problem. <laughs> and we do that. We do that. Jesus is saying, you know what, Pharisees, here, you have given in to a common human thing of just going, ah, the old better. And I have something new for you, something so much better. But if you just do that, it's not going to work. There was no life in the Pharisees' form of spirituality, just a mechanical preference for the status quo. Ah, you know, we don't want to change. And so he says, you know what, you guys aren't even going to want my new wine. It's just like predicting. You got, it, so you think I look wrong, but here's the truth. You're not even going to want truth. You're not even going to want something new that is alive. Real spirituality is not sad and worn. It's full of joy and newness. Well, we're going to celebrate uh, communion as we close today. And so if we could just start serving that now, that would be great. <clears throat> John's uh, disciples, and really everyone eventually, are going to need to embrace, as we walk through the book of Luke, the idea that uh, Jesus came to fulfill the old covenant and to establish a new covenant. And it's really not surprising that Jesus would pull out this little analogy about wine, because I think he knows where things are going, and I think he knows what's going to happen. And as we look at one of the great passages about the Lord's Supper, we drop into that, whoa, what is it, 17 chapters ahead? So I don't know what that is. That's a long ways from now. But anyway, we'll go there today. Luke 22, we find uh, Jesus on the night before he dies, he says to his disciples, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So in other words, we are Old Testament saints gathered here celebrating the Passover. It commemorated, it remembered that God is a redeemer, and the proof of that is that he rescued us from slavery in Egypt. And so we're going to commemorate that tonight in Passover, and I've really wanted to do that. And in uh, verse 17, he says, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. Now, that's not communion. That's a, one of the four cups of Passover. I think it's the second one. And, and it was meant to represent something specific about God redeeming Israel from slavery in Egypt. They're celebrating Passover. Okay, no problem. We're like halfway through the cups. And then he kind of drops the bomb, right? And he took bread, that's normal, that sounds like Passover, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and gave it to them, and he said, now this is, once again, a picture of God's redeeming work in, in Egypt. No. Now this, now, this is not what you thought it was. This is now my body. I'm changing things. <laughs> See, what you have to do is you have to listen for the sound, that clunking sound. That's the jaws of 12 disciples hitting the table. 
Seriously, Jesus? You are changing Passover? Do you know how many hundreds of years we've been doing this? You know, this is in the Bible, Jesus. <laughs> you do know that, right? We're supposed to do this. It's very clear what everything means. We've been taught we're good Jewish boys, right? And now this represents your body? And you want us to do this to remember you, not Egypt? Yes. That's what I want you to do. And after supper, he took the cup. Again, I lose track. The third cup or the fourth cup of Passover gets changed. This cup is now the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, the new covenant they've heard of, that's in the Old Testament. But here are these guys, they're sitting in this room and they're like, no kidding, we're here, the new covenant is arriving? <laughs> because so much changes with the new covenant. See, the Old Testament law was our way of relating to God, but it couldn't save us. It was there to point out how much we needed God. But now we have a new agreement, and it is dependent completely, not on what we do, but on the cross of Christ. And that's why we remember him. They're like, the new covenant is here? That changes everything. It changes everything. Would you take a moment? Turn your attention to the Lord and find that He is present here with you. Ask Him to fill Him with your joy. He said He wanted your joy to be complete because He's present in your life. Seek Him for that as we prepare to eat and drink. Jesus said, this bread is about me. Remember me. Remember how much I was willing to do so that you could be in my presence forever and know my joy. So eat in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. And in the cup, he asked us to remember his blood. Remember, Jesus would say that I paid the price. I did the work. You trust me. You believe me. And we're good.
Let me do the work and know my joy completely. Drink in remembrance of him. Thank you, Father, for the amazing life and teaching and truth and richness that your Son brought to us. Thank you for the promise of uh, your presence. Thank you that your, your spirit is a, is a deposit. There's so much more to come. Thank you that in this simple meal, we remember the, the greatness, the glory of the gift of your Son in our lives. I pray that you would encourage us, that you would reach deep into our souls and give us your joy and, and change us and make us new inside every day. Take us to the places that you want us to go, Lord Jesus, even as we praise you in this moment. Thank you for being among us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.